if you have ever applied for a job, you know the question. If you've ever hired for a job, you know the question. Now, there are a lot of superficial ancillary questions that lead to the question. And the question of any interview situation, of any hiring process, ultimately comes down to this. What do you bring to the table? What, what is it that you have to offer this team, this group, this business, this organization, this school, whatever it is that you're applying for, what is it that you bring to the table? I remember when I was in college here at the University of Texas, I went home one spring weekend specifically for the purposes of finding a summer job. I, I needed the job in the summer. I didn't have one lined up. And so I went home to Houston and began driving up and down Westheimer and throughout Houston applying for work. And one place that I went in in particular was a restaurant. And it was a, it's a good restaurant. Like if you were to look it up on Yelp, it would probably have two and a half or maybe three dollar signs. Not four or five, but two and a half or three. It's a good restaurant there in Houston, very cleverly called Houston's. And I went in and filled out the application. I went in and made sure I went between the lunch and the dinner rush and it was afternoon time. So it was kind of dead as a doornail inside. I filled out the application, sat down in the lobby and I was there for like 15 or 20 minutes and there was nothing going on. And I kind of felt like maybe the, the manager was playing with me a little bit to see how I handled the pressure. Finally, he walked out from the back and he was looking at my application and he waved me over, motioned me to an empty table and we sat down and the interview began. Very early in the interview process, he asked me this question. He said, well, Mr. Richard, I see here that you've, you've done a little bit of retail. What restaurants have you worked in before? And I said, well, I've actually, and, I, and so listen, I had just taken an interviewing class in college and so I was like, I got this, this is awesome. I don't have any experience, but I, I, I was ready for it. <laughs> and I said, well, I've never technically worked in a restaurant before, but I love food and I'm kind of good with people and I've got decent motor skills. I can carry stuff and I'm quick as a cat. I will work hard. I, I feel like I can pick this up pretty quickly. And he started to smile. And, and just in a flash, I started to think, man, this is fixing to happen. This, this, is, this is happening. But just as quickly, I, I noticed that what I had perceived as a smile was actually a smirk. Because he went from <laughs> to this. Looking at my application, he said, well, Mac, let me, let me try to explain something to you. For you to work at Houston's, having never waited tables anywhere, that would be like trying to pitch for the New York Yankees, having never picked up a baseball. All right. So I, I you know, I was the interviewee, and I said, oh, that's, that's a, man, that's a great point. I hadn't considered that. And with that, the interview ended, and I did not get the job. As a matter of fact, I ended up getting a better job and I honked every day as I drove past Houston's. I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. That'd be shallow. I did not do that. I didn't do that. But with the benefit of hindsight, I do understand 
I understand the point that he was making. There, now, but I do think that we can all agree here that he might have pushed his point a little past hyperbole. I mean, I think he kind of stressed the analogy a little bit because, I mean, it's, it's not like I had never seen food or a fork before. I, I understand the game of a restaurant. I know kind of what's, what the goal of a restaurant is. And, and, and listen, Houston's has great food, incredible, best chicken tenders I've ever had in my life that weren't at Chick-fil-A. So I love Houston's, but can we all just agree that Houston's ain't exactly Yankee Stadium? I mean, come on. That, that was just a little bit too far, but his point was well taken. It was well made <laughs> that in that particular context, in his judgment, I did not bring enough to the table for that job. So I didn't get the job. Well, I was thinking about that. I wonder what it is that you bring to the table that would cause God to hire you. Would God hire you right now for his purposes in this world? Because the reality is we're all created by God on purpose for a purpose. But if God was hiring, would he hire you? Would he hire me right now to accomplish his purposes in this world. You know that God is always moving. He is always at work. And, and ultimately, according to Jesus, God is trying to, to make things on earth as they are in heaven. And for some reason or another, he chooses to collaborate, to co-labor with you and with me. He, he chooses to use us for his purposes in this world. And so, the question is, what do you bring to the table for God? What do I bring to the table for God? Now, the, the reality is that you've got gifts and talents that I don't have. I've got some gifts and talents that maybe you don't have. How many of y'all have been watching the uh, NFL Combine this week? You've seen these college players who are trying to make it in the NFL. There's a guy, the word on the street is that there's a guy at the NFL Combine this week who has body fat of 1.9%. Look, I'm 3%. And that is hard to... Hey, why are you laughing? That's just hurtful. But listen, in my, on my best day 30 years ago, I, was, I would never be that guy. He, he's got some, some skills and some talent, maybe even some speed that I did not possess at my peak. But the fact is we all are created by God to, to refract the glory of God through every single facet of our lives. You know, diamonds have facets. That's the face of the diamond, how it's cut and the angles and the clarity and how it refracts the light out from those, those facets. You've got unique facets to your life. I've got unique facets, but we're all created in the image of God to refract the light of God's personality, his character, and his integrity, whatever we do and wherever we go, to bring glory to God. That's, that's the essence of this series that we're kicking off today called Bring It, that everyone is created and designed 
specifically to worship God, to bring God glory in every single thing that you do. Whether you wait tables or you pitch in Yankee Stadium, or if you're a stay-at-home mom, or if you're a pastor, a lawyer, a, a well digger, whatever you do, you have the opportunity to make every part of your life, I have the opportunity to make every part of my life worship, to reflect and refract the glory of God. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians 10, Emily referred to it earlier in the service. 1 Corinthians 10.31 is really the foundation and the basis for this whole series that we're going to be in over the next few weeks. The Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, read these words highlighted with me. Say it with me. Do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. Tell your neighbor right now like you mean it. Do it all. Whatever you do, wherever you go, your life, my life is to be an expression of worship. Jesus talked about this over and over and over. As a matter of fact, one of the most famous conversations in the history of the world occurred between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. It's recorded in John chapter four. It's called Jesus and the woman at the well. There in the middle of the day, Jesus engages this woman as a Jew, Jesus, a Samaritan. They're, they're, they're cultures, they're, they're people hated each other. They, they didn't engage in conversation. And if they did, it certainly wasn't pleasant. And in that day and age, a man and a woman who were not married would never have spoken in public to one another. That was absolutely taboo. And Jesus just blows through all of the cultural taboos and engages her in a conversation. Starts out very superficially. Starts out just by saying, could, could you give me something to drink, please? And from there... He takes the conversation to the heart of the matter. The Bible says that Jesus mentions casually to her something about her husband, and she says, well, uh, sir, I, I am not married. Jesus being Jesus reads her mail. He's like, you're right. As a matter of fact, I knew that. You, you've, you've been married five times, and the man that you're with right now is not even your husband. Now think about just for a second being in that woman's sandals there at the well. Think about what, like, you're, you're talking to, to somebody who's got some kind of insight into your life. He knows all of the stuff that you try to keep secret, but you can't. He knows everything about it. And so she immediately changes the subject. And she says, well, you are a Jew, but I am a Samaritan. And you Jews say that we must worship in Jerusalem, while the Samaritans say we must worship here at this well. And, and she starts talking about religion. She starts trying to compare Samaritanism with Judaism and, and how do you worship and rules and regulations and religion. And, and Jesus, Jesus cuts through all of the clutter. He cuts through the smoke screen. Look at what he says in John chapter 4, verse 23. He says, no, the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Jesus says, the heart of the matter, 
is worship. The heart of the matter is to worship God the Father in spirit, with your soul, with every part of who you are, with your spirit, and in truth, in, in actuality, in reality, by what you do. Worship in spirit and in truth. This is the real worship that God is looking for, that God craves. So I want to give you a working definition. If you want to write this down in the notes section on your uh, program that you got when you came in today, I think it's important for us all to understand and establish a baseline as we begin this series for what worship really is. Worship is this, the intentional acknowledgement of God's supremacy and rightful place at the center of our lives. It's the intentional acknowledgement of God's supremacy, his, his sovereignty, and his rightful place at the center of our lives. That we are to orient our entire existence around the supremacy of God, around the fact that he is God and I am not. He is God and you are not. That's the heart of worship. Now, over the next few weeks, we're, we're going to look at different facets of worship, these, these pillars of worship that allow us to support our lives. Because the reality is, if you orient your life around anything other than God, it will fall. There is nothing in this world, there is no little g God, there is no idol, there is no person who can sustain the weight of our lives. It is God and God alone who is great enough, powerful enough, supreme enough to bear the weight of our hopes and our dreams and our needs and to satisfy them. Some of us know what it's like to, to hopefully find that in another person. It, it puts so much pressure on the relationship, so much pressure and weight on that other person. And heaven help us if, if as parents, we think our children can support the weight of our lives. The reality is God and God alone can do that. So we worship God and God alone. We build our lives around him. And as I said, we're going to talk about different facets over the next few weeks. But today, today we're going to start with first things first. First things first. Because the fact of the matter is there is no clearer indicator, no clearer read on where your heart, where your affections, where your worship lies, or mine, than on how we view our stuff, our, our material possessions, our, our money, the, the stuff that we have in our closet, the car that we drive or the horse that we ride or you know the, the zeros that are in the bank or are not in the bank. However we view that, Jesus said that tells you where your heart really lies. He says wherever your treasure is, the desires of your heart will follow. So, so ultimately, this conversation about things, about material possessions, is really a heart issue. Now, you know what's really, really funny? is how quiet the room gets when the preacher talks about money. 
<laughs> right now, a lot of you wish I was talking about sex instead of money. In the earlier service, the guy up in the top yelled, amen. You don't know what next week is about. But I digress. You see, this reality that Jesus speaks to is why God has given us, as an expression of his grace and his goodness, why God has given us the gift of the tithe. The tithe is a gift to you and to me. The tithe is not a gift to God. We're gonna talk about this in just a second, but the tithe is something that God has given to us as an expression of worship to him that brings all of the stress, all of the anxiety, all of the uncertainty, all of the focus on finances into proper perspective. And the tithe is talked about throughout the Bible. All the way back in Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham is coming off of a major military victory, he gives 10% of what he has just won in battle to God. 10% is that, it's that tithe. Throughout the Mosaic law, the Bible talks about the tithe. Jesus endorsed and celebrated the tithe in Matthew 23, 23. He talked about it in addition to other spiritual disciplines and expressions of worship. But I don't think it's any more clearly communicated than it is in the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter number three. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be there for a little while this morning. It, it, when you first look at it, it'll look like Malachi. But it's actually Malachi. It's Malachi chapter three. God is explaining to Israel the principles at stake in the tithe. Now, in Malachi, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi a, a word of judgment and restoration for Israel. He, he's, he's calling them out for their faithlessness, but he's saying, I will restore you. This is a season of discipline that you're going through, but we will, we will be reconciled. I will restore you into that right relationship that I called you out of all of the universe for. And he says, part of this will be an incredible, incredible blessing. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. God says to Israel, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have room enough to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. In a very real way, God is saying, I, I've got blessings for you you can't even imagine. You won't be able to contain them all. And then he kind of says, put me to the test. It's kind of like God is saying to us, bring it. Let you know, I, I want to show you what this looks like, but, but you're going to have to try me. You're going to have to test God. And, and the only way to do this is to do this. As a friend of mine said a long, long time ago, there ain't nothing to it but to do it. And in order for us to experience the blessings of God, the tithe has to happen. Now, a couple of real quick caveats, quick but so important. Number one, the tithe 
is something that is reserved for Christians. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're kicking the tires and checking things out, this does not apply to you. This is, this is for maybe future use at some point, but this is reserved for those of us who go by the name Christian. That, that's who this is for. The second caveat that I would issue is when God says he will bless us, he is not guaranteeing financial blessing. You know that, that junk that some people talk about, like if you'll send in this, then you'll get back that or, or some kind of craziness like that. That's not biblical. If, you, if somebody ever tells you that, man, the spiritual, theologically sound answer is run for the hills. Just that, That's not biblical. God can bless us in so many different ways. I, I like to say that God has so many tools at his disposal to bless us that they make money look stupid, to which somebody always replies, well, I'll take the stupid blessing. <laughs> but this, this idea of the tithe is really important. I want to define a couple of terms that are in this passage. Number one is, is the word tithe. The word tithe means the first 10% of income given as worship. The first 10% of whatever comes in is given as worship to God. That's what the tithe is. The tithe is not money that you give to charity or that you, you know, throw at this or at that. That's fine. The tithe is the first 10% of whatever comes in given as worship. And when it says the storehouse, the storehouse is the place of community worship. Where you worship is the storehouse. In Malachi's day, it would have been the temple. In our day, it's the church. That's, that's the storehouse. And it's through this expression of worship, this expression of community as we do this together, that God fuels ministry. That's, that's how ministries happen because moving the purposes of God forward in this world is a resource-rich endeavor. It is intense. And I love what Alan Graham, the founder of Mobile Loaves and Fishes says. Alan, you know, as he tours people throughout Austin or his Community First project, which is unbelievable that we get to partner with, people say, well, Alan, besides money, what do you need? And Alan always tells them, mo money. I mean, if you think that that's going to happen just because people are nice, no, it, it takes cash to make that stuff, to make the church be the church. I know it's sad, but it's true. <laughs> but the tithe makes it not sad. The tithe makes it joyful because it's worship. And worship is one of the most fundamental skills of any Christ follower. It's, it's, it's a skill that has to be cultivated, it has to be developed. I've shared with y'all before, I played basketball in high school. I was average at best on a good day. Spent a lot of time on the bench. But there was one thing I could do. I could shoot. Because when you are slow and you can't jump, if you're going to get on the floor, you, you have to play defense. And I would play defense, Jack. I, I would get up in your grill. I didn't care. Nobody likes to play defense. I was like, I can do that. That's just want to. 
And, and coach would put me on the other player, on the other team's best player. Not because I was great, but because I would play defense on them. I was like, <clears throat> pit bull. Or actually more like one of those little French bulldogs, but I would not let go. <laughs> Drive them just crazy. But man, I could shoot. You know why? Because I spent hours, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours developing the skill. I could get the ball, catch it on the seams, shoot. Look, you can tell, I've done that before. I loved at the end of practice after we had done our conditioning, when coach would grab a ball and we're standing on the end line <laughs> and he, he'd throw a ball to one person on the team. He'd go, you got one free throw. You make it, you go home, you miss it, we run again. I always wanted the ball. I was like, I can help the team here. I can't do much during the game because I'm usually on the bench, but here I can help. I can make this free throw and we're going home to the house. <laughs> Listen, when you're trying to shoot, when you're trying to perform a skill and you're winded and gassed, it's a whole nother level. <laughs> I just keep dribbling until I get a little more oxygen. we going home because I developed the skill. Anybody can shoot a basketball. Anybody. Anybody. I, I figured that out. I could shoot. Anyone can worship. Anyone can worship. But you have to develop the skill. You have to work at it. You have to intentionally, intentionally acknowledge the supremacy of God and his rightful place at the center of every part of our lives, Amen. including our finances, including our finances. When we worship God in this way, four things happen. Number one, bringing the tithe worships God as owner. When we bring the tithe, we're worshiping God as the owner of everything, Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. So God owns everything. Psalm chapter 50 says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That, that's a poetic, it's not like limited to a certain thousand hills. That means it's all God's. So whatever you have, whatever I have, it's all God's. And when we bring the tithe, we're worshiping him. We're acknowledging him as the owner. He's, he's the owner of everything. Number two, bringing the tithe worships God as provider. As provider. Do you understand that God chooses to allow us to have some of his stuff? That, that means because he owns it all, whatever I have, whatever you have, has been provided to us by God. He's given it to us. Now, it may come because you work hard and you are smart and you earn a good living or what, that's great. Who gave you the ability to earn that living? Who gave you the ability to work, to think, to earn? God is our provider and so when we tithe, we're saying, God, this is, this is all yours. I, I recognize that, you're the owner of everything, but you're also my provider. I know that you will meet all my needs 
Bringing the tithe, number three, bringing the tithe worships God as protector, as protector. Look at what he says in Malachi 3.11. After he said, bring the whole tithe, verse 11, he goes, your crops will be abundant for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. There's this supernatural divine protection that God offers and provides us through the tithe. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll never have a financial setback. That doesn't mean that you'll never have a roof in the leak that has, I mean, a leak in the roof that has to be fixed. Those things will happen, but your material situation will be guarded and protected by the Lord of heaven's armies. That's that supremacy thing again. He's God, large and in charge, and he promises to protect your and my financial condition through the tithe. So we worship God as our protector. And then number four, bringing the tithe worships God as peacemaker. As peacemaker. Look at what he says in verse 12. Malachi chapter three. Then, after you bring the tithe, all nations will call you blessed for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So when you bring the tithe, there will be this incredible peace that settles around you, not just financially, but in every way, shape, or form. There, there's going to be an order and a structure. Part of God's genius with the tithe is that that, that, that 10% means that you're paying attention. Proverbs, God's, God's book of wisdom, says, know the condition of your flocks because a kingdom is not guaranteed to the next generation. Know what's going on. Know about your income and your outgo. Pay attention to the details. And when you start to pay attention for the purposes of tithing as worship, then you know what's going on. The tithe is the beginning of peace and order and structure financially. I want to ask you a question. You don't, you don't, you're not obligated to answer this, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to answer it already. I've got my hand up already. If you'd like to, feel free. How many of us who feel like sharing with the room, in the last 12 months, how many of us have experienced any financial stress or anxiety? If you feel like sharing that. Now, listen, thank you for putting your hand up. Go ahead and put your hand up. Hold it up for a second. Now, hold your hands up. Now, I want everybody, look around the room. Look around the room. Is that great? I don't mean that you've had financial stress. I've had financial stress. But it's great that we're not alone. It's great to know. I, listen, we walk in on Sunday morning. Isn't it the truth, man? Hi, how are you doing? Good to see you. Pew, pew. How are you doing? Oh, brother, I'm blessed. Good to see you. Yeah. But again, look at how many of us. This is universal. No one. Say no one. No one has completely conquered the materialism monster once and for all. No one. We have to continually check up on it and make sure that it stays in its cage. 
that we keep it in its proper place. And the tithe is the first step in conquering materialism in our lives. It's this peacemaking apparatus that God has given us. Man, when Julie and I, we, we, we do the electronic giving thing. We pray about it and talk about it as husband and wife and, and land on a number, and then we do it electronically. That's, that's how we do it. It's great. Boom, first fruits. But we know when we're looking at our accounts, when we, we look at make sure that that's happening, like, whoa, that, that, we've, we've got a peace. We've got a peace as husband and wife. We've talked about this. We're on the same page. I've heard some husbands and wives get on different pages financially. Nobody here I know, but you probably know people. But the tithe is the first step of making peace financially. It's, it's a gift from God. And it's there for the taking. And I, I know some of you think, oh, my golly, Whew. 10%. Oh, I got to catch my breath. 10. I get it. I do. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be a delight. This is a promise from God. It's a promise from God. I, this, this question comes up a lot when you talk about the tithe. People say, okay, I understand philosophically 10%, the first 10%, first fruits. Is that 10% gross or net? And that is a great question, by the way. It's a great question. Years ago, somebody told me a great answer to that. Do you want the gross blessing or the net blessing? And, and not to be flippant about it, but I, I'll tell you, you know, Julie and I pay our taxes. It's great. We pay taxes on the gross. So I'm not going to give the government gross percentages and God net percentages. Because I learned a long, long time ago, you will never, ever outgive God. We don't talk about this a lot. I don't preach on it a whole lot. And I realized that since the last time that I preached and taught on this subject, there have been a lot of new people coming to Lake Hills Church. A lot of people don't know. They don't tithe because they don't know. I want you to turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face and tell them, now you know. Now you know. Worship. There, there's something about lifting up, about exalting and worshiping Jesus that nothing else can touch. There, there's something about refracting the light 
of the character and the personality of Jesus through every facet of our lives that that it, it just does something. Jesus said something profound in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. There's, there's a spiritual dynamic at work. When, when Jesus is lifted up, when he is worshiped, let's say when we worship him financially through the tithe, he does something in drawing other people to himself. When we worship him in any way, he invites, he, he attracts, he draws people to him. That's, that's the spiritual dynamic. It's the spiritual dynamic that he accomplished through the physical reality of the cross and his death and his resurrection. In John chapter 12, Jesus is just a few days from going to the cross and he says, when I be lifted up, he's talking there not exclusively about worship, he's talking specifically about when he's lifted up on the cross. And when, when he goes to the cross and he became our sin, your sin, my sin, all of it. And because he became our sin, he paid the penalty and bore the consequence of that sin. And he died. That consequence that was rightly mine, rightly yours. It was our sin. Wasn't it? He'd never done anything wrong. Still hasn't. But then he did what what we couldn't have done for ourselves and he rose from the dead. And he defeated death and he subdued sin for the purposes of forgiveness and restoring us to that relationship and that purpose for which we were created. And, And so he's lifted up and he draws us, he invites us into this relationship. I want to ask you, if you will, bow your heads for just a brief moment. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship, we want to give you the opportunity to do just that. Just right where you're sitting, to pray a prayer of beginning, a prayer of commitment. Silently just talk to God and say something like this in your own words. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you, and so I confess my sin to you, all of it. And I choose to believe that you died on the cross and that you rose again. so that I could be forgiven. And so Jesus, in this moment, in exchange for your life, I give you mine, all of it, holding nothing back. Jesus, thank you.
Thank you. If you will, I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. Because for those who just stepped into that relationship with Christ, this is the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we want to help with what comes next. So if that was your prayer, I want to ask you to do just a couple of things. Number one, if you would, I want to ask you to fill out the connect card that's in the program that you got when you came in. Just fill that out. That will allow us to start a conversation, a dialogue that'll proceed at whatever pace works for you. You'll notice about a third of the way down, there's a place to indicate I committed my life to Christ this week. When you finish that card, you can tear along the perforation there on the fold. Just fold that card up and before you leave, hand it to one of our ushers, one of our hosts in the blue shirt or You can stop underneath the big front porch out here and give it to somebody at the hub. But the second thing I want to ask you is if you would, as our heads are bowed for another second, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just just raise your hand and hold it up high for a moment. Your hand in the air is just a physical statement of that spiritual commitment that you just made. And so as a church, As a family of faith with you, we celebrate that. And you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. 